spirits. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again just for another day. Uh, help us not take these special times for granted. We thank you for providing your word and a local assembly where we can be secure and uh, together as family, united in mind to pursue your plan and learn more about your son. We're eternally grateful, Father, for what you did on the cross, giving up your only son for us so that whoever trusts in him will never perish but has eternal life. Father, we ask that you bless this message. Guide us and teach us by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. The Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness, Part 3. First of all, I just want to start this way and say, thank God that God is not a God of confusion. That would really be difficult, like religion is difficult. Religion makes it difficult in getting to know God, etc. Uh, they complicate it. But God is not a God of confusion. And as such, he has designed life in a way that the humble can understand and follow. Uh, it's not based on intellect, in other words. There's no need to figure it out, so to speak, or complicate it, once again, like religion is known for doing. As the Spirit's been revealing, the spiritual life is as simple as the following point on the board, which came out on Sunday. Whatever is not right is sin because it's wrong. Almost sounds too simple, right? Almost sounds like a prep school principle. Whatever is not right is sin because it's wrong. Whatever our good conscience convicts us of, we must obey the Spirit and do what's right. So don't take these kind of principles, you know, don't scoff at them in your mind, in your, in your soul, and say, well, that's easy or that's obvious. That's really the worst thing you can do because you can miss the point that the Spirit's trying to make. Again, whatever is not right is sin because it's wrong. Whatever our good conscience convicts us of, we must obey the Spirit and do what's right. Allah James 4.17 And here we see a simple definition for sin that even a child can understand. In James 4.17 Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So think about it. When we do what we know is right, our conscience is then cleared. And therefore, we have peace, right? It's a really simple chain of events that even a child can follow and be blessed by through obedience. When we do what we know is right, our conscience is then cleared, and therefore we have peace. If you reverse it, how can we expect to have peace or experience peace when we refuse to do what we know is right? God won't allow it. God designed us this way that we can only have that clear conscience when we're obedient, when we follow what we know is right. Now, if you don't know, that's coming up again. If you really honestly don't know in your heart about a certain thing, being right or wrong, then your conscience is clear, isn't it? If you haven't been taught that or understood that yet from the Spirit. So, if you do know what's right, 
the only way that we'll have peace is by obeying what we know in our conscience. And it may not be what we want to do, but when we do what's right, we have a relief in our soul. Is that fair to say? A relief, a um, no stress, um, again, clear conscience. Is there anything worse than having a guilty conscience? Not much, really, is there? Because it nags you every day. And you can try to ignore it. You can try to deny it. You can try to fill your time with other things so you don't have to think about it. But the Spirit's just going to keep knocking and be like, maybe a little louder after a while, right? And then it turns to discipline. But there's not much worse than a guilty conscience. And God designed it that way to push us in the right direction as graciously as he does instead of slamming us as, he, as we deserve to receive. But if you think about it, what a wonderful provision from God the conscience is to show us the right way in life. It's almost like a perfect protection system within us, built in us. So here we see on the board, James 4, 17, we are each accountable for what we know or understand to be right. Our relationship with God is very personal. This came out on Sunday as well. It's very personal. And his knowing the heart of each person, this is why we can't judge one another and we can't say so-and-so should have done this. We have no idea what's going on in their heart. Absolutely none. So how can we, again, jump to conclusions or, or put something on someone that maybe God hasn't even put on them yet? So our relationship with God is so personal, and he knows the heart of each individual, and he will discipline each child appropriately in his timing by grace. Why? Really the, the genesis of this series. Because training through discipline leads us to do what is right. How many of you do what is right without discipline? Right? How many times? What, what a low percentage. We're so stubborn. We're so obstinate. We even try to fool God. Training through discipline is what leads us to do right. And then what's the result? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Being right with God in our actions in Hebrews 12, 11. So let's remember the order of things as we continue in this series on the board. Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline. So that's what comes first, right? Because we need it, apparently, because we won't be obedient without it, for the most part. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, how long does that take? For each of us, different amounts of time. But for the stubborn, it's a long time. For those who have been trained by it, in other words, finally, then afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The more stubborn and arrogant we are, the longer it's going to take, the less we get to enjoy God's peace. The more humble we are, the more obedient we are. We listen to the discipline, we obey it, we accept it. And then God says, okay, now your conscience is cleared. And so you can have my peace. But these things are all necessary because of our flesh. The very purpose of God's training His children is to lead them to do what's right. 
and therefore a clear conscience, and therefore the result of peace in the heart of a man. So let's call it on the board, Peace from Living by a Good Conscience. Remember, Paul's peace was related to his conscience and the way he chose to rightly live before God, including living in the calling of the Great Commission. For example, Acts 23.1, Acts 24.16, Romans 9.1, 1 Timothy 1.5, Hebrews 13.8, 1 Corinthians 4.4. So let's see some of these verses here, and some of them are going to be familiar, some are going to be different from our past noting of the conscience and its role. But let's start in Acts 23, verse 1. Go to Acts 23, 1. Again, peace from living by a good conscience. And notice the key word here is from living. Okay, it's not peace because of a good conscience. It's peace because you choose to live in the good conscience. Obey it. Remember, Paul's peace was related to his conscience and the way he chose to rightly live before God, including living in the calling of the Great Commission. So Acts 23.1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. So there you see, even if you had the ability to say this to somebody at some point in your life, you have freedom, you have peace. If you can honestly say these words, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Go to Acts 24, 14. Let's just read this in context. Acts 24, 14. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is, in, that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, in other words, there's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a consequence to our lives. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. There's some great wisdom. And in our next verse, we see a direct relationship between the Holy Spirit and our conscience. On the board in Romans 9.1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So how exactly the Holy Spirit and the conscience work together? I mean, it's a supernatural thing, so don't get hung up on it. But we know that they're intimately connected and related. The Spirit uses our conscience like a tool in His hands. And that's why we're better off obeying it when we're being nudged. When we know, we know when He's trying to get something across to us. You know, we can deny it all we want. But the Spirit guides us and convicts us by the conscience that, conscience that He gave us. Go to 1 Timothy 1.5. 1 Timothy 1.5. So again, our point is that we're, we're learning about the peace that comes from living by a good conscience. 
for example, there's nothing like it when you can honestly tell somebody, I did my best job on that thing, whatever it is, right? If you can honestly say that, you're, again, your conscience is clear. You did your best, you're honest with them, and there's a peace to that. 1 Timothy 1.5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If that's your goal, whatever your role is in life right now, whatever your spiritual gift is, if that's your goal in this verse, your motivation in life, so to speak, then you're going to find peace. You'll honestly do things before the Lord with a good conscience. Go to Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. The author writes, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Again, there's, there, there's where peace lies, if we can honestly say that. And then we have a sort of a balance statement from Paul, that even if our conscience is clear, it doesn't mean we're all or we're innocent of all things. Uh, but we can have peace if our conscience is clear, knowing that God looks at the heart. On the board, this is kind of a balanced statement in 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4, Paul writes, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted or innocent, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So it doesn't mean we're perfect when our conscience is clear about something. It means that in that area of life that we're being tested in or, or called to account, um, if we can Honestly, say we're doing the right thing before God. God knows what we know. God knows what we don't understand yet. And uh, that's where peace lies. And Paul had it because he followed his conscience, which he knew was guided by the Holy Spirit. So again, on the board, peace from living by a good conscience. Remember, Paul's peace was related to his conscience and the way he chose to rightly live before God, including living in the calling of the Great Commission. So again, we're accountable for what we know and understand to be right in God's eyes. Go to Luke 12, 47. Luke 12, 47. Here's another example of this. We're accountable for what we know or understand to be right in God's eyes. And you can't fool God. You can fool a person. You could say, oh, I didn't really know that was right. But you know if you know in your heart that you know it was right. Uh, sorry for the repetition, but you know what I mean. Um, we're accountable for what we know. God knows our heart. There's no getting around it, getting around Him. And thank God for that. That's a good Father, right? Who's attentive and wants the best for you and wants you to grow. So we see an example of this accountability for what we know in Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. 
So again, we're accountable for what we know and understand to be right in God's eyes. And this uh, design that God has given us, including discipline, is all by grace, remember, so that we don't destroy ourselves and so that we bring God glory before our time is up. Because when we get to heaven, we don't want to have any regrets. This life is so short. I mean, I, I see people and I hear people uh, passing at a young age, different people even I went to school with, even people younger than me that are passing. And we take so for granted that we're going to live a certain amount of time and we still got time to bring God glory. How do we know when our life is required of us? So by grace, God's going to keep on us as a good father, discipline us when necessary so that we learn to do the right thing and have peace, and that's what brings him glory, among other things. And he also prevents us from destroying ourselves and wasting our life away. So here was the balance statement on Sunday. There are times where you do not realize that you are offending God, missing the mark, therefore sinning. So do not spend every moment worried about such things. Do the best you can with what you know to be right or wrong. Be encouraged. Don't be religious or legalistic. Be encouraged, as in Romans 8.26. You can turn there again, Romans 8.26. A very encouraging passage. So don't get hung up on the things you don't know, you know, because God is gracious. He understands if you really don't get something yet. Romans 8:26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here we see very personal attention from God for us on our behalf. So pause and think here. God knows us so well, he even prays for the things we can't put into words. He doesn't even have to use words. Of course, he's God. But he even prays for things we can't put into words for us. I don't know if you've ever been there. If you're going through a tough time, you're at a loss for words even with what exactly to pray for. How many of you have ever prayed and let out a groan or a sigh in the middle of your prayer? Nobody? I do it all the time. It's pretty funny. When I do it, then I catch myself. I'm like, oh, wow, that was a big sigh or something. But, like, God understands. That's the beauty of it is sometimes you're thinking about something. Something's bothering you. There's a problem. You don't know what to ask for. And he knows your heart's in the right place. You might let out a groan, and, you know, who knows that, how that communication works. The Spirit takes it to the Father. And um, things are happening on our behalf, even when we're unable. God knows and understands what you're expressing, even without the right words. That's why this passage should be so encouraging. And the Spirit is groaning with you and for you. I mean, who doesn't... Who, Jesus understands everything we're going through, right? He was tempted in all areas, yet without sin. He understands exactly what you're going through, even you ladies. All right, just because he was a man doesn't mean he doesn't understand. He went through all kinds of testing. He understands the suffering, the pain, the anguish, the anxiety. He understands it all. And that's the spirit of Jesus, right? 
the Holy Spirit, one and the same. So this concept also came up on Sunday. The spiritual life is meant to be interactive. Us with God. The spiritual life is meant to be interactive. It's not meant to be only gathering knowledge. But we gather knowledge for its usefulness in life. Don't fall into that trap, which I've fallen into in the past, is that knowledge makes you spiritual or something. Knowledge is for the purpose of its usefulness in life. What good is it having a hammer and nails if you don't use it to build a shelter? It's of no use, right? You can know what the thing is useful. You can know how to use it. If you decide, choose not to use it, there's no good in it. Kind of like the book of James is talking about. But the spiritual life is meant to be interactive. Uh, We've been designed to listen to and obey the Spirit of God and the good conscience that he's given us. We've been designed to use it. So on the board, let's just call this living life with God. It's a daily interactive relationship with the Spirit of Christ that tells us how to live in the Word. Doing right and producing marvelous fruit for him with our insignificant little lives. I speak as a man, but you know what I mean there. Living life with God. It's a daily interactive relationship with the Spirit of Christ that tells us how to live in the Word, doing right and producing marvelous fruit for Him with our insignificant little lives. Let's see more of this interactive life with God in Romans 8 again. Look at verse 26 again. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So here's a pivotal point on the board that's worth repeating in this series. Unrighteousness equals sin equals discord, which is a lack of peace. What we've learned is that peace is the result of our Lord's promise to give it. My peace I will leave, I leave with you, John 14, 27. However, we've also learned that such promises are conditioned experientially upon our obedience. Psalm 112, 1, Proverbs 16, 7, John 13, 17, James 1, 25, and 2 John 1, 6. On the board, Psalm 112.1. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Peace comes from obedience. We believers are saved, but we still have a lot to unlearn from the world and even from our childhood. And as we've been learning, this takes time. And that's okay with God. In fact, it's part of his plan. Sanctification takes time, but it's accomplished by the very active grace of God in our lives. Very active, just like a father holding the hand of his son uh, as he grows up. Sanctification takes time, but it's accomplished by the very active grace of God in our lives. We mustn't forget that. 
He's so, so gracious and so, so patient. On the board, so we, we need to have fair expectations, knowing that time is required, in other words, to grow up and to understand. While it's true that when we're saved, we are changed internally, we are new creatures in Christ, as in 2 Corinthians 5.17, all the external forces in our lives do not magically change as well. We're made new creatures, and we're also granted Christ's righteousness at the moment of salvation. So we're made righteous by grace through faith as well. And that's why our position is secure. Uh, we're right in God's eyes because we accepted the blood of Christ on our behalf. So go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let's see both of these um, concepts here. Just to encourage you about the internal change that has been made in you as a believer. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we'll read this passage in context. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So positionally, we're made righteous. So why is it that we still have to live in his righteousness? God wants us to grow up and experience these things that he's given us. So being made new and being made righteous as believers, we now have the opportunity to live for him and live in his righteousness. That's what we're called to do. The person who does this will be blessed with, with such great things as peace. There's nothing like peace. Again, on the board, regarding fair expectations, while it's true that when we're saved, we are changed internally, we're new creatures in Christ, all the external forces in our lives do not magically change as well. So the Spirit has put us on, uh, put on us rather, the approach to this being very practical. Again, he's talking about being very practical. How does this work in our lives? How is it supposed to work according to God's word? It's not a religious, legalistic approach to doing the word trying to earn points with God. God wants our heart's desire to be practicing what is pleasing to Him. God wants our heart's desire, and only God knows the heart, right? He wants our heart's desire to be practicing what is pleasing to Him. And you may not be there yet. That might not be what your heart is saying on a daily basis. You still have to grow up maybe out of the religious approach or angle to um, the approach where you have the desire to please God. And I've been thinking a lot about Romans chapter 7, how the Apostle Paul said, you know, I do the things I don't want to do, right? And I don't do the things I want to do. So even though he was 
messing up through the whole time. His desire, the desire of his heart was changed from salvation on, and he was expressing that. And that's one, one of the key things, signs of being a believer, is that the desires change. But it takes time. And this is where God wants to get us to, in, in purity at some point. But it takes time. So we're talking about two different motives on the board. Our motivation shouldn't be earning our way with God, but instead a desire to please our Heavenly Father who loves us and gave up His only Son for us. Two different motives there. We might say there's a religious motive, which we all have a little religion in us, remember, versus an appreciative motive, the perspective of gratefulness for God's grace and mercy towards us as a sinner. So being practical is very good, in other words, right? God wants us to be practical and practice good things, but it has to be done with the right motivation as well. So again, on the board, our motivation shouldn't be earning our way with God, but instead a desire to please our Heavenly Father who loves us and gave up His only Son for us. We also saw this on Sunday. <clears throat> Practical implies practice. This is what it means to think of these messages in a practical way. It means we are looking to practice that which is pleasing to our Lord. Pretty simple. But it takes time to get there in, you know, in your heart, so to speak. We're not always having the right motivation. Sometimes it's a guilt motivation. Sometimes we get on a treadmill. But this is what God wants to be our primary motivation more and more, as in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 9. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5, 5 again. Second Corinthians 5, 5. And this is one way that we know we're on the right track towards the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So there's our, our down payment of eternal life. That's, there's the sealing of the Spirit, okay? He gave us, he made us new creatures. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore... Being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, so there's our good motivation, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to That's what God where God desires us to be. So, for example, the Spirit asked us some very pointed questions last week. Um, I was telling a friend, like, in conversation, they're even intruding questions, making you examine yourself and, and be uncomfortable. And that, again, is grace. Um, we want the truth. The Spirit asked us some very pointed questions about our priorities regarding different areas of life, such as money, media, relationships, free time, and even spiritual activities. What's your priority, why, and why do you do the things that you do? We know God looks at the heart and the motivation. 
Now, these things take time. God, thank God, is very patient with us. So, as a side note, when we fail in our motivation, when we recognize our motivation is not pure, our priorities are not pure, are not godly in a certain area, should we get condemned and guilty? Or should we repent as part of our relationship with God as our Father? We know the answer. But we have to watch out for that. There's a tendency to get guilty. There's a tendency to uh, shy away from God, to get gun shy, to not go to Him honestly and openly, even with our ugly motivations at times. But God our Father is basically saying, no, I want you to recognize and admit when you're wrong and come to me with it. All right? See, if you picture God as your father, honestly, you're, you're willing to do that. It's when we stop picturing him as our father that we don't go to him in the right way. We look at him in the wrong way. But he calls himself our father for a reason. So he's saying, I want you to recognize and admit when you're wrong and come to me with it. I'm trying to teach you how to think and how to do right. This is not for condemnation. This is to bring you along to a better life and to my peace even. So, as a side note, if you realize some of your priorities and motives have been off, simply humbly repent and go forward in what the Spirit has revealed to you. And then, do the right thing. Don't stop at the conviction. If he's telling you to do something or to not do something any longer or to go correct something or to go forgive somebody, whatever it is, do the right thing. Act upon that truth that he's revealed to you by grace. It's for your freedom, our freedom. We also received this analogy on Sunday. Who here is willing to say that a good farmer never has to actually do farming? that he never has to till the field or milk the cows or bale the hay or pluck the weeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would be silly to say he doesn't have to do anything. As Holy Scripture has told us over the years, God wants us to do our work as unto him and for him, whatever the work is. On the board, the Lord wants to be our motivation. The Lord wants to be our motivation. Him. Not even because He said so. You see what I mean? His person. It's personal. He wants to be the reason that we do what we do to the best of our ability. And that is righteous in God's eyes, as in Colossians 3, 22 through 25. So whatever our calling is in life or even for a time in our life we obey we do the best for him and because of him this is where God's taking us again because it's not always like this it's just not because our flesh creeps in we get frustrated we give up hope sometimes etc but this is where he's taking us in this sanctification process to a place of ultimately peace because of things like obedience and proper motivation. So turn to Colossians 3.22-25. Let's see this wonderful reminder for us all. 
Again, the Lord wants to be our motivation in whatever we do that is righteous in His eyes. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So there we see the Father's discipline in view, impartially training us so that we can eventually rest in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What else you know, should we expect from a good father other than to train up his child in what is right? That's what God's doing for us. But in this passage, again, it's the Lord Christ whom we serve. So keep in mind, too, in this passage, it directly says, when you obey your masters on earth, your authorities on earth, you're obeying Christ. So interactively, there's a real interaction with another person. But God says, when you obey that person, rightly, humbly, that you are serving Christ. So let that be our motivation. But when we don't do it, God's faithful to discipline us in verse 25. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So again, we're talking about simplicity. You know, this is just how life works. And God dictates how life works. And he clearly, graciously gives us the instructions. They're not confusing, confusing, if you can say that. They're very simple. They're meant to be simple. They're meant to be Will you obey me? Will you follow me with the obedience and the faith of a child? On the board, we can learn a lesson from Cain. Genesis 4, 6 through 7 in the NIV. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching, crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Pretty simple. There's that passage in the Old Testament, uh, I'm sorry, the New Testament about authority, how it doesn't hold the sword for nothing. If you do what is right, you have nothing to fear, right? But if you do what's wrong, you should fear the authority. It is a very simple formula. So like a good farmer, we are to tend to the plow that we've been given by the Lord. On the board, we saw this Sunday in Luke 9, 62. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And we noted that Jesus was not speaking about entrance into the kingdom, but service within it. If you're saved, your hands are already placed on said plow. So a good farmer doesn't look back. Not even side to side. He looks straight ahead to concentrate on the good work at hand, the good work in front of him for that day. And a good father desires obedience to what he's teaching his children. 
including to keep looking straight ahead at the task at hand at this point in your life, to stay on the narrow path that he's given, to do right when you know it's right. Simple good truth from God. A practical statement from Sunday was that a farmer knows the right thing to do, therefore he must do it. So for us, as God opens our eyes to certain things, we become accountable. And he wants us to actually do it. He calls us out. He says, I I actually want you to do this when when he reveals it to you. He's saying, here, here, my son, I've shown you the right way. Now I expect you to do it. And my grace is with you. But go forward by faith and do that thing. So again, on the board, the believer must farm his land. We've, we've all been given a plot of land by God. By analogy. It's our life. A farmer knows the right thing to do. Therefore, he must do it. As God opens our eyes to certain things, we become accountable, and He wants us to actually do it. That's the way we ought to think about our God-given lives. This also came from Sunday, a simple but profound statement from the Spirit on the board. If we aren't practically doing what we know is right, then it is unrighteous. It's wrong, right? It's sin against God. If we aren't practically doing what we know is right, then it is unrighteous. Think about Paul living in his calling earlier, right? We talked about how he lived in the Great Commission. His conscience was clear because he was obeying God. Whatever your calling is, and the Great Commission is part of all of our calling, but we also have different spiritual gifts. Whatever your calling is, God knows if you know what your gift or gifts are, and then God knows if you're purposely disobeying to live in that gift, right? So maybe there's repentance needed. But again, on the board, if we're not practically doing what we know is right, what we know God set before us, even put on our conscience, then it's unrighteous. And therefore, the result is, guess what? A lack of peace. There's a verse where Paul says, um, I'm under compulsion to preach the gospel. If I don't preach the gospel, I'm not happy. I don't have peace. Why? Because you're disobeying what the Spirit is pushing you to do. Pretty simple. You want peace? Obey. And watch God bless you. Even though you don't want to obey at times, even though you're scared, scared to step out by faith in a certain area, God's going to bless you because you're obedient in ways that you probably can't even imagine. So we only experience His peace when we're following His ways. And that's how God designed life. So we talked about encouraging fruit. Fruit is a practical device that God uses to prove to us that He is actually sanctifying us. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, John 16.33 Isaiah 12, 2, and 26, 3, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, Romans 15, 13, Hebrews 12, 14, and Psalm 4, 8. Let's review some of these passages from Sunday. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4, verse 8. Psalm 4, verse 8. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. 
Peace is a primary fruit of doing the right thing. And in particular, what you know to be right. Peace is one of the fruits in your life that reveals your, I guess even your salvation to others, that you're changed, but also it's fruit in your own life to enjoy. Psalm 4.8 In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So there's a, a fruit of faith, trusting in the Lord. We have peace. Go to Isaiah 12.2. Isaiah 12.2. Some wonderful scriptures. And, you know, these are ones that, you know, if, if it hits you, you know, you might want to commit it to memory. You might want to um, really know in what, what these verses are saying in your heart and walk around with them throughout your day. Um, place your trust in the Lord in these promises. Isaiah 12, 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Go to Isaiah 26, verse 3. Again, we're talking about peace as a fruit of righteousness. Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So far, all these verses express faith in the Lord. It's when we trust Him that we can have peace. Uh, on the board, we have 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. You see how that's God's desire for us? He really wants us to live a life in peace and not be bothered by the things of the world and not be bothered by our own bad decisions or disobedience to our conscience. He wants us to Follow him and be at peace until we see him face to face. Go to 1 Peter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8. This is a wonderful passage we saw on Sunday that um, really spells it out for us. To sum up, all of you be harmonious sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, doing is very important. Doing what you know to be right results in peace. On the board, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 
So again, our point on encouraging fruit, fruit is a practical device that God uses to prove to us that he's actually sanctifying us. And peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. So just think about the fact that God desires for us to possess his peace. As we begin to close the lesson tonight, God desires for us as our Father to possess his peace. It's very clear that's his will, and he grants it to those who obey him. So this means on the board, we are to actually live like Christ, not just talk like him. It's real easy to talk like him. Real easy to mimic and say the right thing, but totally different to live the life. It's real easy to say to someone, I love you. It's much more difficult to actually love them, to do what's necessary to show you love them that doesn't even require words. And that was Christ in a nutshell. We are to live like Christ, not just talk like him. So per our ongoing analogy, the last uh, few lessons now, God has given each of us a plane to fly. It's called your life. And it's unique to each one of us. And no one else can fly your life for you. God's given us each a plane to fly. It's you and the Spirit of Jesus. And your instruments are the words of God. When you're in that cockpit with Jesus and the door is closed, no one else can fly your life. No one else gets to make decisions in your life. But yet the Spirit of Christ is right there with you and influencing you, showing you the instruments so the point is that that came out on Sunday is that there's no room for freelancing. There's no room for introducing our own opinions or feelings apart from God's word. Unless you want to crash and burn in life. But we've all uh, done that enough, haven't we? You know, those of you who are young, you don't have to make the same decisions that many of us who are older. You don't have to make the same mistakes. The question the Spirit's asking is, are, are you ready to do what's right and follow him with a good conscience? Are you willing to trust your co-pilot instead of trust your feelings? So very important, this came up on Sunday, flying by the seat of your pants. Feelings ought to be treated as results, not causes. The cause for spiritual living is the inerrant truth of the word of God. While we may experience feelings as a result, we ought never trust our feelings when they contradict Holy Scripture. A lot of people will say, you know, you can believe what you want or you can believe in your God, but I think God is this way. I think this is, this is how he is. You know, that, that's how I feel about God. Really what they're saying is I hope what I'm feeling is right. But there's no substance to it. There's no biblical evidence to it. It's just their emotions, really. Making decisions. And that's a dangerous way to fly, as Pastor talked about on Sunday. When you're in that plane and you feel like you're going down or you feel like you're going in a certain direction or the appearance of the sky is telling you one thing but the instruments say another, you better be careful. So just apply that to our spiritual walk and how we tend to go towards our feelings 
when we make decisions. On the board, we don't get to feel our way to understanding God. God has already revealed himself to us through Holy Scripture, through Jesus Christ, the Word. The Word says, follow your gut. The world says, follow your gut. The Bible says, follow Jesus. And we know Jesus is the Word incarnate. And by the way, if you know that, you're now responsible. You're now accountable to God. As believers, we have the responsibility to farm the land the Lord has given to us. We are to keep our hands on the plow and keep our eyes straight ahead so we plow good furrows straight ahead. Stop coveting your neighbor's possessions. Stop looking over the fence as you go by on your mower. You know, that's what some of us actually do in reality, in real life, right? We look over the fence. What do they have? What should I covet that I don't have? And what do we do? We go through their fence with our mower. You know what I mean? Because our eyes are off the center. And when your eyes are off the center, you veer off without even knowing it. And then what happens? Destruction, danger, unhappiness for self and others. So what is God saying? Keep your eyes on the field I gave you and do your best with that field. Your field might be 10 times smaller than the next guy's field. I want you to plow it like it's gold. I want you to plow it like it's mine because it is mine. I want you to plow it like it's my field and you're going to make it the best field you can possibly make for me. I was thinking about how when I was a teenager and I'm driving on the highway and my eyes would go to a car in the lane next to me. And then you're on the highway, you're going fast, you know, maybe this car is a little too close, whatever. And you look over and you say, you better not come close to me. You know, you're eyeing that car to not come in your lane. What happens? I, I, would, I would stop beeping at the car because the car was getting closer to me. But I was the one getting closer to the car. I was looking at the car, so I was slowly doing this and I didn't even know it. And I beeped at the guy. <laughs> and it was me. What was my problem? I was looking at other people's whatever, tasks, whatever. I wasn't focused on my task. I didn't have my eyes straight forward. And pastor was talking about that with a, a pilot of a plane uh, or the farmer and the plow. So what came out as a result of pilot training, we're going back and forth between farmers and pilots, both good analogies. Never trust your feelings, but rather your instruments. And pastor sh shared this visual with us on Sunday might see a little bit better uh, tonight that it's dark out. I know it's tough on Sunday morning, but if you can see all the different instruments and panels, and I mean, there might be a thousand there when you look at them all. And look at this. Imagine each instrument you see here and each dial you see here in the picture as a different doctrine in the Word of God. Maybe one tells us what's right for relationships. One tells us about repentance. One tells us about work and obeying authority, another on marriage, another on children. All these different dials are right in front of you, though. They're from the Word of God. All these instructions are right there for you to obey and follow instead of going by what you see out the window. So our quest is to follow the instruments. 
the instructions from God's word, not to judge by the appearance of the sky and therefore by our feelings. Man judges by the outward appearance, remember, and that's one of his big mistakes in life. We judge by what we see or what we think we see, which isn't always what we see. When we find out the behind-the-scenes story about somebody's life, for example, we got to follow the instruments, stop following our feelings. God might say this on the board, looks can be deceiving in the devil's world. Don't trust your physical eyes or your feelings. Trust your spiritual eyes. Be guided by the Word and the Spirit. Some sound advice, because we make that mistake all the time, don't we? We prejudge a situation, a person. Um, usually we don't know the half of it. And God's saying, stop trusting your physical eyes. Stop trusting what you think you see. And that includes your feelings. Trust your spiritual eyes. Be guided by the word, your conscience, the spirit. And uh, you'll have peace. So as the analogy goes, the Bible is our instrument panel right in front of us. Not confusing. There's a lot of it, right? But it's not confusing. It's turn this knob to go faster. I'm making this up as I go here. You know what I mean? You can go to one instrument at a time, but it's all right in front of your face. If you're humble and obedient to the word, he will give you the answers. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your provisions, and for the simple design of life that we can obey with the faith of a child even. Uh, we thank you so much for not complicating it and making it confusing, but just telling us right from wrong and giving us your spirit and your word to convict us. We're so grateful, Father. We just ask for more humility and more faith so that we can be pleasing to you, so that we can bring you glory in this life before our time is up to be with you forever and ever. We're eternally grateful, Father, for your Son and for the gift of eternal life through him. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thank you.